Welcome to the Anything But Catholic podcast, episode 15. We've learned how to count again. I don't know why I said that like William Shatner. But I'm your host, Christopher Lawrence. With me, as always, the amazing apologist, David Cook. David, how's it going? William Shatner isn't here, right? <laughs> I don't think so, but you never know. He's, he's a little sneaky. He's always sneaking up behind aliens and karate chopping him. <laughs> if I suddenly stop talking, it just means that Shatner has sneakily karate chopped me. This is the most uh, important theological concept that you can learn today. The nature of Captain Kirk. Could you imagine actually fully fleshing out those depths, the nature of Captain Kirk? I don't think anyone's ever going to do it. <laughs> now, I'm a simple man, you know. Maybe there's somebody out there. With a massive intellect that really could get into that stuff. But Maybe I, mean, I don't know. Like Patreon only, only episode for subscribers. Yeah, people will pay for this. <laughs> Let us All right, know so, the Facebook group whether or not you would pay for this. If you, if you would, if you would like a weekly deep dive into Captain Kirk, let us know in the comments. <laughs> We're here to please you. But in the meantime, this is our weekly. Q&A episode where we take questions from you, the listener, and we are grateful for them. Please continue to send them in. Um, today we have three questions. David, our old friend Anonymous did not show up this time. We have people with actual names, so I hope that's not too disappointing for you. I'm very disappointed. I think I'm going to cry now. All right. Well, when you're done, we'll <laughs> So what do you say? Should we just jump right into them? Yeah, let's do it. All right, great. So this comes from Tom. Uh, and Tom says, what are the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit? Seven gifts of the Holy Spirit are wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. And I have some stuff I took from an article called from Catholic.com, which cites Aquinas. Um, okay. The seven gifts of the Holy Spirit are, according to Catholic tradition, heroic character traits that Jesus Christ alone possesses in their plenitude, but that he freely shares with the members of his mystical body, i.e. his church. These traits are infused into every Christian as a permanent endowment at his baptism, nurtured by the practice of the seven virtues and sealed in the sacrament of confirmation. They are also known as the sanctifying gifts of the Spirit because they serve the purpose of rendering their recipients docile through the prompting of the Holy Spirit in their lives, helping them to grow in holiness and making them fit for heaven. The nature of the seven gifts has been debated by theologians since the mid-2nd century, but the standard interpretation has been the one that St. Thomas Aquinas worked out in the 13th century in his Summa Theologiae. Wisdom is both the knowledge of and judgment about divine things and the ability to judge and direct human affairs according to divine truth. Understanding is penetrating insight into the very heart of things, especially those higher truths that are necessary for our eternal salvation. In effect, the ability to, quote, see God. Counsel allows a man to be directed by God in matters necessary for his salvation. Fortitude denotes a firmness of mind in doing good and avoiding evil particularly when it is difficult or dangerous to do so, and the confidence to overcome all obstacles, even deadly ones, by virtue of the assurance of everlasting life. Knowledge is the ability to judge correctly about matters of faith and right action so as to never wander from the straight path of justice. Piety is principally revering God with a filial affection, paying worship and duty to God, paying duty to all men on account of their relationship to God, and honoring the saints and not contradicting scripture. The Latin word pietas denotes the reverence that we give to our father and to our country. Since God is the father of all, the worship of God is also called piety. Fear of God is in this context filial or chaste fear, whereby we revere God and avoid separating ourselves from him, as opposed to servile fear, 
whereby we fear punishment. These gifts, according to Aquinas, are habits, instincts, or dispositions provided by God as supernatural helps to man in the process of his perfection. They enable man to transcend the limitations of, the, of human reason and human nature and participate in the life of God. As Christ promised, John 14, 23, Aquinas insisted that they are necessary for man's salvation, which he cannot achieve on his own. They serve to perfect the four cardinal or moral virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, and the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. The virtue of charity is the key that unblo unlocks the potential power of the seven gifts, which can and will lie dormant in the soul after baptism and less so acted upon. Because grace builds upon nature, the seven gifts work synergistically with the seven virtues and also with the twelve fruits of the spirit and the eight beatitudes. The emergence of the gifts is, fo is, foistered by the, is fostered by the practice of the virtues, which in turn are perfected by the exercise of the gifts. The proper exercise of the gifts, in turn, produces the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, modesty, self-control, and chastity. Galatians 5, 22-33. The goal of this cooperation among virtues, gifts, and fruits is the attainment of the eightfold state of beatitude described by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 3-10. And I took that at an article from an article from Catholic.com. Great. So, since... St. Aquinas says that these gifts are necessary for our salvation, and these gifts are only come about through confirmation. That would seem to say to me that confirmation is a sacrament which is necessary for our salvation. Normatively speaking, I mean, confirmation is when we receive the Holy Spirit. At the same time, like we've said before, God has bound us to the sacraments. He's not bound by them. So, you know, if you get hit by a car on the way to your confirmation, I mean, I think God can work with that. <laughs> Sure, through extraordinary circumstances, God can give us graces as he sees fit, um, in whatever manner he sees fit. Now, David, also, I did not notice in there, listed among the gifts, maybe you skipped something, but I, I didn't hear the one that um, says speaking in gibberish and falling on the floor. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm pretty sure that that's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, no? Uh, yeah, it's not in there. <laughs> you sure? Okay. I mean, from what I understand, speaking in tongues in scripture was a gift that was primarily during the apostolic era. It's not something that's normative. And also it would have been actual languages. Like it would have been a situation where, you know, somebody who didn't know Chinese would start speaking in Chinese. It wouldn't be speaking in gibberish. And again, this is one of those things where when people read the Bible for themselves without the understanding of the church and of the tradition, they come to strange ideas. Um, and that's what you see with the Pentecostal or charismatic movements that you're kind of that you're kind of uh, referencing here. Right. But, you know, and also just in a common sense, pragmatic kind of way, it, 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 should be self-evident that God wouldn't give people useless nonsense gifts, right? So if nobody can understand what you're saying, what good is it doing? I mean, if you look at what the texts actually say, leaving aside how this is actually plays out in the light of the tradition, but if you, but if I put my Sola Scriptura hat on for a second, which by the way, <laughs> I don't want to do, I mean, go watch my previous episode about that. But um, if I was going to put my Sola Scriptura hat on for the sake of argument, the text says that you shouldn't be speaking in tongues in church without an interpreter anyway. So most Pentecostals are violating that one, too. Well, I appreciate you putting your solo scriptura hat on for just what minute, because I know it makes your head real itchy. It makes my head really itchy. Yeah. Okay, so should we move on to the second question now? Do you have more to say about the gifts? The actual I think, gifts? That, I think that's what I got for now. 
Okay, yeah, very good. Okay, so our second question comes from Wendy. And Wendy says, I, I like this one. This is good. Not that, the, not that there was anything wrong with the last one. The last one's good, too. But this is interesting. Did Christ raise himself from the dead, or was he raised from the dead by the Father? And I would, I would add, does it matter? And if so, why does it matter? First of all, the answer to the original question is yes. <laughs> right. Um, to give some more information on that, the Council of Toledo says that Christ was risen from the dead by his own power. Quote, in this form of assumed nature, we believe, according to the truth of the Gospels, that he was conceived without sin, born without sin, and died without sin, who alone for us became sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. That is a sacrifice for our sins. And yet he endured his passion without detriment to his divinity for our sins and condemned to death and to the cross. He accepted the true death of the body, also on the third day, restored by his own power, he rose from the grave. Now, really quick, I'm going to comment on 2 Corinthians 5.21. Because a lot of Protestants see this as proof of the erroneous idea that Christ actually had the wrath of God the Father poured out on him. Like they see him becoming sin as suggesting that the um, like Christ is almost imputed, had imputed onto him the guilt of our sin, that God the Father actually held him responsible for our sins. But if you'll note this conciliar statement says the fact that Christ was the sacrifice for our sins is enough to make him become sin, according to that text. So this 7th century, I believe it was, council did not understand that text in the same way that Protestants understand it today. Now, but the on the topic of what we were talking about, the Christ rose himself from the dead. Um, that's also taught in scripture, John 10, 18. Jesus says he lays down his own life and he takes it up again. However... Romans 10.9 says that God, meaning the Father, raised Christ from the dead. Remember we've talked about before, God is can be a title for the entire Trinity, but it also can be a title for the Father in particular. Ultimately, the Trinity always acts in union with itself. Whenever the, any divine action takes place, all three persons of the Trinity are involved. So, as you can see, the answer to this question would be yes. Um, Christ rose himself from the dead, and God the Father rose him from the dead, and the entire trinity was active in that situation was your second question why does it matter right why like why would um if there were a distinction which now we know there is not why would it make a difference it would it would essentially leave you if you really to nuance it it would ultimately lead to a kind of polytheism because you would have persons of the trinity going off and acting on their own without the other members of the trinity what that would essentially mean is that you have multiple divine wills which when you really parse out what that means that really leaves you with three different gods which we do not believe in that would be a gross manifest heresy well it could it could in some way maybe maybe i'd be wrong but it might also lend itself to arianism too right if god the father alone had to act upon christ to raise him from the dead yeah, I, I think that could follow. Yeah, I think you'd either end up with Arianism or polytheism, one or the other. Right. Okay. Very, very good. Let's move on to question three. So question three comes from Joy, and Joy says, oh, this is interesting too, and this is something that you really don't hear get talked about a lot. Joy says, how do we know which Old Testament laws are binding on Christians today? You know, it's funny. This might not get talked about as much by Catholics, but uh, when I was Protestant, I got into some very intense debates about this. Um, fortunately, the church does have the answers for us, and thus we don't need to argue over our own interpretations. 
So the Old Testament contains some laws which are binding on only the Jews, um, others which are binding on all peoples and at all times. And once again, our friend St. Thomas Aquinas makes the distinction for us in the Summa Theologica. Quote, I answer that the old law showed forth the precepts of the natural law and added certain precepts of its own. Accordingly, as to those precepts of the natural law contained in the old law, all were bound to observe the old law, not because they belonged to the old law, but because they belonged to the natural law. But as to those precepts which were added by the old law, they were not binding on save the Jewish people alone. So basically what St. Thomas is saying here, and I'll quote more of him in a second, but basically what St. Thomas is saying here is you don't have to follow any law just because it's in the Mosaic law. However, many of the laws that are contained in the Mosaic law are also contained in the natural law, and those would be binding on all people at all times. Does that make sense? Sure. All right. So continuing on. The reason of this is because the old law, as stated above in Article 4, was given to the Jewish people that it might receive a prerogative of holiness in reverence for Christ, who was to be born of that people. Now, whatever laws are enacted for the special sanctification of certain ones, they are binding on them alone. Thus, clerics who are set aside for the service of God are bound to certain obligations to which the laity are not bound. Likewise, religious are bound by their perfection to certain works of perfection to which people living in the world are not bound. In like manner, this people was bound to certain special observances to which other people are not bound. Wherefore it is written, Deuteronomy 18:13, Thou shalt be perfect and without spot before the Lord thy God. And for this reason, they had used a kind of form of profession, as appears from Deuteronomy 26:3. I profess this day before the Lord thy God, etc. So basically what he's saying is some of the laws that were given to the Jews were given to the Jews because they were set apart as a particular special people at that time in the Old Testament. Now, it's important to note God's chosen people are now the church. The church is new Israel, but there are certain laws that are associated only with old Israel. So, for instance, I had a McRib this afternoon uh, before I got on here to record, and that was absolutely not a sin, um, even though God told the Israelites not to eat pork. Oh, it might have been a sin since it's McDonald's, but um, <laughs> but not because but not because it's inherently wrong to eat pork. Because that's a law that was given only for the Jewish people and not and not for everyone. So um, in Acts chapter 10, when the um, flying carpet comes down with all of these different unclean animals and Jesus says to Peter, David, David, this is not Aladdin. It's not a flying carpet. It was a sheet. Okay, um, fair enough. (laughs) Um, It's a sheet. Was it was Abu there? What's that? Did. Did Jafar come come down with the carpet also? What's up? <laughs> I'm I, I stand corrected. Um, let this be proof that everyone makes mistakes. Um, but it, it was a sheet, and uh, all of these unclean animals are on. I almost said the flying carpet again. <laughs> Good grief, but, David. <laughs> but on the sheet, and uh, and God tells Peter, uh, kill and eat. And Peter says, like, well, how can I do that? Because um, I've never eaten anything that was unclean. And God says, what I have declared clean, do not declare unclean. And then Peter went out and preached the gospel to a Gentile. Now, the primary emphasis was, yes, the Gentiles were being brought into the covenant. But also, also, the church has understood that this was, in fact, saying the food laws, which are symbolic of the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles, are no longer binding. The Council of Jerusalem, the first ecumenical council, even before the first council of Nicaea, ruled that circumcision is no longer a requirement. 
Um, and the Holy Spirit guided that council to make a correct decision. It's infallible. It can't err. And we can't dissent against it. Um, and I could go through other examples. I mean, there's laws about covering different types of fabric. Um, like, um, you can't mix cotton and polyester. Like, obviously, that's only – well, I shouldn't say obviously, but that's only for the Jews, um, the Old Testament Jews. It's not binding anyone today. There are other laws, though, that are immoral laws, and these are summed up in the Ten Commandments. Um, the third commandment, um, which is not to do work on the Sabbath day, is fulfilled by attending mass and abstaining from servile works on the Lord's day. The particular day was transferred to the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection of Christ. But that general, but that natural law of taking one day in seven to rest and worship does still remain. I think this is one of those things that is neglected by many modern Catholics. They think that there's no necessarily obligation to abstain from servile work on one day of the week, but there still is. Um, and if you go through a traditional examination of conscience for confession, that would still be in there. Um, now, um, there are other laws which are civil, and they aren't exactly symbolic, but they aren't exactly binding either. So, for instance, there's a law, there might be a law like, for instance, um, you have to build a fence around your roof. Now, part of the reasoning behind that, that's not really ceremonial, but the reason why was because people regularly walked on the roof and they'd hold parties on their roof. So if you, you wanted to protect people to make sure they didn't fall off. So something like, you know, stopping at a traffic light might be comparable to that. Um, maybe a modern application if you just drive through a, um, busy intersection, then, you know, you could hit somebody else and, um, that would be bad. Um, or something like, you know, not every country is bound to have, for instance, the death penalty for homosexuality or fornication, not fornication, adultery. But those things still are morally wrong. And the principle that governing authorities have the right to punish evil and to reward good would still remain, even if the exact penalties in Christian nations don't have to be exactly the same as they were in the Jewish nation. So to basically summarize this up, you've got ceremonial laws, which are only for the Jews um, in the Old Testament. You have civil laws, which the general principle to rule justly remains for governments, but the exact application can differ somewhat. And then the moral law contained in the Ten Commandments, which continues to be binding on everyone, just like it always was. Great. Um, and just to add one little thing in regards to the meat-eating issues specifically, in the tradition of the church, we abstain from eating meat on Fridays um, as an act of penance. And you cannot abstain from something which is an ill or an evil as an act of penance. So therefore, the eating of meat must be a good. And also, St. Paul says that if you do not eat meat, it like makes you a total weenie. Don't at me, vegans. <laughs> All right, very if, good. If that, veganism that... true, why bacon? Why if veganism if veganism true, why bacon tastes good? <laughs> right. Exactly. No one has been able to shoot holes in that one yet. <laughs> all right david well actually that takes care of all our questions what a fantastic job we did today if i do say so myself and you're welcome <laughs> okay so just to sum up as always we would like to entreat you to send in your questions to the show so that we can answer your questions on the show we take questions primarily from protestants who have objections or misunderstandings about why the Catholic Church practices the things it does, teaches the things it does, prays the way it does, etc. And we will also take questions 
from Catholics who wish to better understand how to defend the faith from Protestant objections. You can send any of your questions to cquavirtus at protonmail.com. That's S-I-Q-U-A-V-I-R-T-U-S. And protonmail is P-R-O-T-O-N-M-A-I-L. You can also submit questions on our Facebook group, and please join the group. And the group is facebook.com slash groups slash anything but Catholic. That's all one word. We have a weekly question thread there where you can submit your questions as well as participate in discussions about previous episodes. I would also entreat you to go to our main website, which is cqualvirtues.com. We can find the full range of our content all back episodes of this podcast, as well as our two other podcasts, the Sequel Virtues podcast, artistic submissions from our readers of short stories, essays, painting, music, artwork, photography, etc. And you can also find their link to our Patreon. And please contribute if you can, even a dollar a month makes a difference. And we also have a merchandise shop, which contains Catholic merchandise, that you may actually want to use in public. David, can you give us the latest on your upcoming debate now? Yes. So the date has been switched to February 21st, which will be a Sunday. Um, The topic is going to be on Sola Scriptura, and I'll be debating a Protestant apologist named John Wesley Bush on that point. And um, I will get the room key for that soon. Hopefully I'll be able to put it in the description of this episode when it comes out. Okay. Very good. As always, I'm your host, Christopher Lawrence. With me is apologist David Cook. Please send us your questions. In the meantime, if you're listening to this before Christmas, have a very merry and blessed Christmas, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.